Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, February the 2nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and with me today are Jennifer Bray, Harry McGee, and Pat Leahy from our political staff. Good morning to you all. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Pat, it feels to me like we're embarking on a sort of a new political chapter right now with Omicron receding right across the country, people trying to figure out, I suppose, what, what lies ahead. Today, we are going to try to apply that particular lens to the world of politics. So, I did want to start off with some wisdom from Father Ted, because it does seem to me that in Leinster House and the rest of the political realm, people often have a bit of a difficulty distinguishing between what is small and what is very far away and what is not important and what is important. So maybe we could start with something which I think is small, which is the lingering headache from this champagne gathering almost two years ago now in the Department of Foreign Affairs. You're writing about this today. Is this going to keep dragging on? I don't think so, to be honest. I think that the report which was published on Monday night and raised in the doll yesterday is more than likely to be an end of it. This is the report compiled by the current Secretary General of the Department, Joe Hackett, into the the so-called champagne party. Though if that's a champagne party, you know, it's not as much fun as you might have uh, uh, as you might have thought. It's not the kind of champagne party that happens in your house every Friday night, is what you're saying. Well, I mean, I, I take exception to that, Hugh. It doesn't happen every Friday night. It's, sometimes it's Thursdays uh, as well, if I get my column done early. But I think um, this happened two years ago, or a year and a half ago. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that it has really cut through with the public. It has clearly become a political uh, and uh, and media issue. And you know that's because that sort of, that that irresistible pick of the officials gathered raising their glasses of uh what may be champagne but was referred to in the uh, in the official report as sparkling wine i can't believe it was prosecco in the department of foreign affairs <laughs> well I, I i i have a snitch in the department of foreign affairs who tells me that uh departmental gossip suggests that at least some of it was prosecco which um would, I, I suppose, make it a more serious, possibly resigning offence for Simon Coveney. But in all seriousness, right, where does this go from here? It has clearly been, it's clearly been a political issue that has taken up time, political bandwidth, uh, has inflicted some damage on the Department of Foreign Affairs and on its minister, Simon Coveney, whose handling of the issue has been a good bit less than deft, I think, does it really matter? Will we, you know, will we be talking about it in a couple of months as something that has had any sort of political, any sort of lasting political impact? I'm inclined to the view that that we won't. And if you read the report, what it makes clear is that on all the evidence that has been assembled, and it appears to have been, notwithstanding the fact that they didn't interview Simon Coveney, but by everybody's account, he had he passed by the thing, spoke to staff for 
uh, 10 or 15 minutes, rather brief by Coveney standards, I would have thought, in an hour and a half, I think, after the champagne stroke Prosecco stroke Cava stroke Cremant, whatever it was, a half an hour after those corks were, were popped, or an hour and a half after those corks were popped. So the report is reasonably thorough. It finds that there was a breach of social distancing guidance, but no breach of statutory rules. I think, you know, it might have a rhetorical half-life of a couple of more days, perhaps. But beyond this week, is anyone going to be talking about it? I, I, I don't think so, really. Right, I think that's fair enough. And also, reading between the lines, I think you're suggesting that any joyous champagne-fueled occasion is likely to come to a grinding halt once Simon Coveney shows up. <laughs> but maybe moving on to something that's more in the news and, and certainly preoccupying some people at the moment, Harry, is we got an announcement this week about the never-ending story of what's going to happen with the 2022 leaving certificate. And there was a certain amount of pressure coming from the opposition and from student unions and other places to have the same format we've had for the last couple of years. It's not going to happen seems to me to be the right call. Do you think that there'll be much of a backlash to this? Yeah, there definitely will be a backlash. And unlike Champagne Gate, the opposition were all very, very much against the announcement that was made by government yesterday. Uh, Champagne Gate, the difficulty for Sinn Féin with Champagne Gate is that they had the big elephant in the room, otherwise known as the Bobby Story funeral, which softened their cough a lot. So I think that Pat is right in relation to that, that, that particular issue is going to... Uh, fizzle out over the next couple of days unless they bring um, Magnum PI in to do a further investigation as to whether it was Prosecco or Champagne. But we will leave that be. Uh, with Magnum probably the worst of Champagne PI. <laughs> yes, yes you, got, you got the pun, One Pat. One of the worst well jokes ever, ever aired on uh, the Politics podcast. In relation to the Leaving Cert, the Leaving Cert is going to be difficult this year uh, irrespective of what uh, model is chosen. And the reason why is because uh, in the previous two years, they were able to use the junior cert as a comparator, or as a base uh, with which to assess students doing their leaving cert. That's not fully possible in 2022 because 25% of all students got their junior cert, but 25% of those who, did their junior, who got their junior cert didn't actually do the exams. So there's no ready uh, comparison available to the Department of Education and those who mark exams for that particular uh, cohort. And of course, they can do extrapolations and bell curves to try to capture uh, that uh, cohort. But it's very difficult when you're talking about individuals uh, with different abilities, different skill sets and different uh, strengths. Against that, uh, we have a huge cohort of students going into the Leaving Cert uh, who have had a very difficult two years, long periods when they were absent from school. Uh, those who have had COVID, uh, they haven't had proper exams. Uh, there's been remote learning uh, within school. Uh, there have been a, a huge plethora of restrictions uh, as well. So the circumstances are difficult. Uh, so any solution or arriving at any solution is going to be a problematic uh, proposition. So the government have decided that there's going to be a traditional type leaving cert this year, albeit one with tweaks and with concessions. I think the range of questions that will be asked on each of the papers will be wider. Uh, so uh, to ensure uh, that, uh, you know, those who might not have had a chance to complete all the coursework 
uh, will at least be able to answer questions on coursework that they have done. That would have to be very carefully drafted and uh, and coordinated uh, to make sure that they get the balance right in, in relation to that. Personally, I'd agree with you, Hugh. I think it's the correct decision. I think the Leaving Cert does have its drawbacks, but I think a hybrid exam this year with that 25% who haven't done the junior cert exams was going to be difficult. And there are other issues that have arisen in relation to the hybrid uh, model, including uh, grade inflation. And grade inflation is, is, is a very, very difficult one. It's not applied uniformly. And I think there's an innate unfairness to be discerned in some aspects of grade inflation, uh, you know, that, that must be uh, addressed. All of the opposition uh, want to have a hybrid model this year. They want to have uh, assessments plus exams, but the government isn't buying it at the moment. And I think that we're going to see a lot of uh, divided voices uh, of this in the next weeks uh, and months. And actually within the, the profession, there, there's uh, there's a division as well. The deputy principals and principals uh, want a hybrid model where all the teaching unions are in favour of a traditional uh, exam format. So I should say I have some uh, direct interest and knowledge in this. Leaving Cert is a big subject in my house for two of its inhabitants who are both studying for the Leaving Cert at the moment, the fifth year and sixth year. I mean, everything Harry says is 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 true there, Pat. I did wonder a little bit last week when the department was issuing kind of flyers or warnings or flags or something suggesting that given that that junior cert data, which Harry was talking about, wasn't available, they might have to go to school profiling, which people might remember from two years ago, was a very, very controversial issue, not just here, but in the United Kingdom as well, in that it was looking at past performance of schools and people argued that it was therefore um, giving an unfair advantage to schools in better off areas and uh, disadvantaging desh schools, for example. But the other thing I think that we need to add to what Harry said is that the department has said that the grades are going to be as high this year as they were last year, which I'm sure is going to come to a comfort to everybody because they were far higher last year than they ever were before. Of course, if everybody's boat rises, well, the impact is negligible because you're still competing with everybody else on the same playing field. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be, the, the exam's going to be easier and it's going to be marked easier. So the grades are going to be at the same stratospheric level that they were last year, which means you get a better leaving cert, that's fine. But if, as for most people who are doing it, you're using it as an entry route to college, then it's no good to you because you're competing against people who've grades, whose grades have similarly been inflated. So, you know, I, I think, uh, as Harry says, this is a political difficulty for the government, but it also illustrates the kind of, you know, the essential nature of government where your decisions are not between good and bad, easy and hard, black and white. Your decisions are between various unappealing alternatives and you know, they have, I think what the government has done in this case is that it has taken on board the desires of the teaching unions, of the Department of Education, of the educational establishment, which is that, you know, an end of year exam for all its faults is something that they know how to do. One of the great difficulties with the system last year was that they essentially didn't know how to do it. And it was made up uh, it was made up on the hoof. Now, there's been some suggestions that it should essentially make up a different system uh, this year on the hoof again. But really, really, if they're going to do that, then you need to start work on that, uh, you know, last summer or before that. So the upshot is everybody, uh, all the kids have to sit at the leaving cert, but they'll get it marked more easily. The real pressure, as we see from Carla Brian's lead story, 
in the paper this morning is going to come on the colleges who will have to handle tens of thousands of uh, of applications from people who will expect to get into particular courses because they're achieving the grades or the points required for those uh, courses. But as I said at the beginning, so are all their competitors. So, you know, that is uh, that's clearly a headache for them. You know, there's a criticism of the of the failings of our meritocratic system, not just in Ireland, but elsewhere in terms of the kind of, of the great inflation that goes on. If somebody's bright enough to get maximum marks um, in the Leaving Cert, they're probably bright enough to do medicine or dentistry or anything. So, you know, it's not necessarily a bad idea to have a lottery between those people rather than these infinitesimal differences between them deciding what to get in. They're good enough already, but that's maybe an an argument for another day. To move on from these kinds of things, which in my Father Ted definition at the outset, Jennifer, are kind of small sheep, which are very close. Let's talk about a few large sheep that are further away, but are arguably more important because, you know, they had to cope with this leaving cert thing in the, you know, in the next week or two, and they have done so for, for good or ill. But now, as we embark on this new chapter... Who are the ministers who face the largest challenges this year? Because really, we're really now into the meat of this government. I know it's been in power for um, for a year and a half, but now it's got a run of of almost two years where it has to achieve some of the things which it set out to do. So I presume we're talking housing, health, those kinds of things. We're back to those. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, those issues that were the biggest kind of social issues before COVID came along will come back into the fore this year. I've gone through kind of different legislation that different ministers are are going to have to push through this year in particular. And it really struck me that in the Department of Children and the Department of Health, there's some really big ticket items coming up that will be tricky. You know, I'm thinking of the Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman. He is going to have to bring in, obviously, um, the provision for the redress scheme for mother and baby homes. He is going to have to bring in the institutional burials bill. Um, in order to exhume the remains uh, on different sites around around the country. And that's been long delayed and long promised, um, obviously alongside the mother and baby home redress. So I think for him, getting those issues and actually making proper progress on them, you know, after talking about them for years will be a tricky one this year, but it, it, it'll be top of his agenda, I, I think. Um, in the Department of Health, Donnelly, Stephen Donnelly has huge challenges. Um, and I'm not just talking about tackling the waiting lists, which you know, we're up around the one million mark. That is probably his biggest challenge is kind of fixing all of that broken infrastructure that was broken already before, but which has become so much more acute in light of the COVID pandemic, because we know that a lot of procedures were put off. A lot of people didn't get to go in for the screening appointments. And there's a lot of kind of other long-term health complications arising from it that are non-COVID related. Um, and I think he'll struggle a bit to to find the money to deal with that. Um, there has been talk of this sort of multi-year budget plan, um, but we haven't really seen the full details on that. So we'll probably have to hear about that. Obviously, another big thing from this summer will be abortion. Um, so we know that he has put in the chair for the new review um, of the abortion legislation uh, now that it's three years in operation. And that will inevitably lead to calls from both directions, from campaigners for and against the law uh, to change it in different ways. Um, and it'll be a tricky one for the chair of that of that body to kind of, you know, make a recommendation. But I think what what she will do, Emery O'Shea, is she will talk to all the, the people who use the service, the people who provide service and then the public consultation and take it from there and make recommendations to government. But it is my understanding that Stephen Donnelly's plan is to get her report um, 
bring it to cabinet, bring those recommendations to cabinet. And then afterwards, I think his plan is to put it back to the doll. I think he wants a cross-party, across uh, across Oireachtas consensus on this. So that opens up the idea of another debate on abortion, generally speaking, which we haven't had, obviously, since the referendum. And you'd be looking at that probably sometime uh, in the autumn. And um, you'll hear a lot about it uh, bu- building up to the summer. Um, obviously, for the, the finance, for Pascal Donoghue, Michael McGrath, it's balancing the books. And also, you know, it's figuring out how we deal with our finances post-COVID. Um, and that is a tricky one. You know, I think we have a tax commission. I don't remember the exact title of it, but we have a commission due to report um, before the summer. And that will kind of tell us a lot about what our uh, plans will be going forward in terms of the next budget. Um, and then I suppose a, a couple of other things, obviously, uh, Leo Varadkar's department, very important for businesses post-COVID. He, as we've seen, got a lot of criticism, I think, for his bill on um, remote working. Basically, the accusation was that, you know, you can ask for it, but your employers can say no. Um, I think this will become a big issue in the coming months. And then in terms of other bits and pieces, just to wrap up before you get totally bored. So in the Department of Justice, Helen McEntee has promised a domestic sexual and gender-based violence strategy. So she's told us that she'll have this ready in March. Obviously, this is really important, very timely uh, after the violent death of, of Ashley Murphy. And we're hearing like, so many awful stories in the last couple of weeks about uh, violence against women. So I think that'll be one of her big priorities. But also the Judicial Appointments Commission bill, those reform to do judicial appointments and policing reform. So we know she's trying to bring these massive sweeping reforms uh, to the structures of the guards, which will place this kind of new oversight uh, over the Gardaí and it has opposition, as far as I can see, completely across the board. So it'll be really, really interesting to see how she gets past that. And then finally, obviously, you mentioned housing. We have, you know, all the promises that Darrow Byrne has made by 25,000 homes this year, maybe more. Um, and in relation to his new cost rental scheme, which he says or, you know, claims will help to dampen the effect uh, uh, in the rental market. And then finally, obviously, he has to sort out these issues with the MICA houses and he has to sort out the issue with the pyrite houses and he will also have a working group report on um, defects in apartments which I think will mainly look at uh, fire safety issues so that's going to be the second part of the Celtic Tiger hangover um, that we've we've been uh, looking at for the last couple of years so there's just a couple of bits coming up that I think are interesting um, and finally 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 obviously climate change Eamon Ryan's low-cost loan for retrofitting where is it and and when are people actually going to be able to afford these big things that are being, you know, that are being asked of us? Hope that wasn't too much, Hugh. And that is quite a list. And I'm going to add to it, Harry, uh, something which is a, a factor, again, in Irish society and indeed across the Western world that used to be really central to political debate and then went away for really quite a long time. I'd say some of our listeners don't recall it being at the centre of political debate. And that's inflation. And we're facing a level of inflation now that we haven't seen in decades. And there is, there's, a, there's an outstanding question about whether this is a temporary blip as a result of the pandemic and uh, particular issues around energy supply and supply lines, or whether it's kicking off uh, a, new, a new normal, I suppose, in relation to that. But in the immediate future... Inflation always causes a problem for governments. There'll be questions about the uh, the public wage bill. Um, there'll be um, 
cost of living increases, which impact on the way that people think about social welfare payments. There's all kinds of of stuff that inflation has a has an impact on. They can heighten the political temperature uh, quite fast. Some of the, some of those things. So, uh, how important do you think that might be over the next year? Well, it's going to be very important. Um, and yes, inflation, the last time inflation reared its ugly head in the Irish context was a long time ago. I think it could have been as far back as the late 1990s, actually the middle 1990s, when inflation went up to 15 and 16 percent and became uh, unmanageable for those with mortgages. Of course, because we're in the single currency, we no longer control one of the levers that was used uh, in terms of addressing inflation which was um, adjusting the interest rates. And that now is a function of the ECB. So when you read various commentators and various institutions, uh, you get very uh, differing perspectives on the inflation situation, as is at this moment in time. According to the ECB and to our own central bank, inflation is high at the moment, uh, but they're of the view uh, that it is a temporary phenomenon and uh, first of all, they said by the spring it should have eased. But now they're kind of saying the autumn towards the end of the year. But if you go to the um, Fed in the States, uh, their view is is far less uh, optimistic. They've already uh, adjusted interest rates by, by a very small amount. But more increases in interest uh, are expected later on in the year. And I think as time goes on, to me, and I am absolutely no expert in this area, I don't even pretend to me, but just as a punter looking on uh, from on, on top of the ditch, it does look like it has more of a, uh, of a sheen of permanence to it uh, than something that is temporary. And we have been faced uh, in the third quarter of 2021 and into uh, the first quarter of 2022 with very high inflation in Ireland, especially in terms of energy. And people who have uh, received their utility bills or tried to put a fill of diesel or petrol in the car will know all about it. The prices are like so high compared to last year and inflation has been running at well over uh, 5% in, in, in some sectors, you know. And if it continues to do like that, people will see, you know, they're getting less money in their, you know, they, they have less bang for their buck in terms of their household spending. So uh, they, they, they will... The, the pressure for government will increase and people will say that that something will have to be done. We've had diverging voices within government as well. Uh, we had Leo Varadkar doing an interview a couple of weeks ago in which he said that this, uh, you know, pay rises for civil servants would, would definitely form part of the next round of pay talks. And then the man from Del Navin Road promptly said no. <laughs> Pascal Donoghue said uh, that that's not a certainty at, at the moment because or Michael McGrath actually I think might have said it uh, because that, that is something that has yet to be uh, decided but there will be pressure put on government uh, to give pay rises to public servants and there will also be pressure uh, from citizens out there uh, to, 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 to ensure uh, that the things that are you know basic commodities in their lives aren't uh, becoming unaffordable again. I'm no more an expert on economic theory than uh, than Harry is, Pat. But I mean, I I do recall. I mean, I think including on this podcast, you having a debate with David McWilliams and this whole idea of modern monetary theory that you can throw money at things, which obviously has been done in spades over the last two years or so during during the pandemic, and that you know it it 
it won't do any harm, basically. It's basically that that the sort of theories which were in place for the preceding 30 years don't apply anymore. And that, in fact, inflation doesn't matter that much anyway, even if it does happen. But in the real political world, in the ways that, that Harry has described, and perhaps in others as well, it really does matter, doesn't it? Yes. That's why I was sceptical about this idea that you can just, governments can keep helicoptering money uh, around the place, which they've been doing now. I suppose David makes, you know, an additional point that they should helicopter the money onto ordinary people rather than uh, to, you know, corporates and uh, and states, which have had the effect of, you know, increasing the price of uh, of assets. And of course, this is one of the problems with inflation. If everything just went up by a couple of percent, that would probably be all right. In fact, the ECB's target is 2%, inflation in or about 2%. But, um, you know, so it's running, you know, in excess of, uh, in excess of 5% now. But it's not that everything is going up at, uh, in single digits. Some things are going up uh, by vastly more than single digits. It's not just in Ireland this is happening. In Italy, they're complaining about the price of pasta going up 40%, you know, and we see, you know, things like uh, home heating oil in this country going up by um, by sort of similar uh, similar proportions. And that, of course, hits people most particularly on fixed, in- fixed incomes and people on, uh, you know, on or about the poverty line. This will become, I think, possibly the biggest political issue of, uh, of, of the year, the cost of living. People don't think about it in terms of inflation, which is an economist's word. They think about it in terms of the cost of living and the difficulty of meeting, uh, you know, of filling their car with petrol for the commute that they now have to do because they've got to go back to the office are filling their tank full of uh, of home heating oil, which they need to do because they're at home all the time and they're retired or whatever. Those are the things they think of, and they will look to the government to uh, uh, you know to solve that problem or to make take some steps towards solving that problem. The government has already recognised this by giving everybody hundred euros off their uh, off their ESB bill, I think, and governments around. Uh, Europe have taken other, some of the more uh, bolder steps in uh, in in dealing with uh, in dealing with the problems, or at least alleviating the problems. And I think this will continue to be a problem and a growing problem for the government. Here, you will hear the government called upon to do something. You know, I think opposition parties, of course, will be uh, perhaps less specific in many cases about what exactly it is they want the government. Uh, uh, to uh, to do, but there will be. There was a lengthy discussion, I understand, at a cabinet economic committee before Christmas uh, about this, where the topic of supports for people was discussed uh, at length. And of course, as you would expect, finance and public expenditure are conservative uh, about this because they don't like showering people with money because they know it leads to more inflation. But when people are in that position of having to pay increased prices for the basic necessities uh, of daily life, then they will look towards the, the government to, uh, to, to address that. And one final point about this is this will be felt acutely, particularly in the area of, uh, of house prices and of rent. Now, of course, if you own your own home, you know, while you may tut-tut at, uh, at increasing house prices, there's maybe 
there's maybe a part of you that says, well, you know, it's not uh, it's not all bad, but if you are renting and they are the people on the front line of the housing crisis, then obviously it's a much greater problem for you because a bigger proportion of your income is being uh, is being used for rent. And therefore, if you're trying to save for a deposit, then you can save less and less uh, uh, all the while as the price of the house or apartment that you might want to buy uh, is going up. So there are political problems for the government wherever they look at this problem. It's interesting, Jen, because that what Pat describes right there is right at the norm of what political debate has been about over the last year or more and is likely to be for the next year or two and maybe right up to the next election. And when you look at what's happening with inflation, the other thing that's happening is there is an economic boom or certainly an employment boom happening. I and mean, you were talking about employees possibly looking for you know more flexible conditions at work. Uh, one of the reasons why they might get it is because there's a shortage of employees around and uh, wages are rising. Um, but I, I was reading an interesting report in our business page just a few days ago, they're rising much more in some sectors than in others. So if you're um, if you're working in I, in IT or if you're working in financial services, you can possibly expect a wage increase in the double digits easily into the well into the double digits this year. That might be much less true in other walks of life. So the kind of divide, the inability to get a home, the inability to get in a property ladder, or even to rent an apartment, these kind of things, which are really at the sharp edge of politics at the moment, they're likely to get sharper. Yeah, it is really kind of a dual economy that you that you described there. And I think the big question politically will be, and, and when you're asking, you know, what impact will this have on politics and what way will it shape uh, the debate leading up to the next general election? The, the first question obviously must be how long, you know, is it expected that these, that this rate of inflation will, will continue? Because if it's a temporary thing, um, then obviously the debate moves on. But it was interesting because um, I was reading back actually over some of the uh, a recent speech given by the governor at Central Bank, Gabriel McLoof, and he was saying, you know, he was asking the question, is this temporary? Is it transitory? And he had this quote where he said, um, I think it's from a Danish physicist, you, you know, you know, the quote, prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. Um, but he did say that what they do expect is, is for inflation to remain uh, above 2% for most of this year, but that it will drop below um, 2% in 2023. And 2024. But that obviously is a really, really long time for people to be struggling um, on the breadline. And this is coming up in the doll all the time. Everything from what Pat mentioned, the, the price of pasta to the to the price of petrol. So you can imagine a situation in which this goes on longer in the year and we're back into this conversation about, you know, a rip off Ireland um, and about, you know, like Pat mentioned, people struggling to, to fill up their oil tank. I mean, I have an oil oil for my to my environmental shame, an oil tank at the back and it cost an extra 200 euro to fill it up for the winter than it did the previous year. Um, you know, and that's a lot of money. Um, so I think politically, obviously, you would wonder about the effect kind of on, on working class voters. Could this push people maybe who weren't traditionally, maybe people who are, whose faith in the government was waning for different reasons, further into the arms of Sinn Féin, especially at a time when Sinn Féin are arguing against things like the carbon tax, uh, the property tax, um, because it is the lower income households that kind of will who are who are hit the hardest, and it's a real source of of anxiety because it's hitting people in the two places kind of where it matters the most in the local shop and at the petrol pump, um, and and that's a real you know that that's a daily uh, experience and a daily um, anxiety. Um, Pat mentioned that there was a, a cabinet committee which discussed this late last year. 
Now, the line that the government are, are kind of reeling out whenever they're talking about kind of tackling this and helping households is that obviously they're afraid, they're afraid to do anything that would make the situation worse, which is understandable. But last October, the European Commission uh, gave this toolbox, they called it, to member states. And they said, here's your options, basically. The first option was for a voucher or partial bill payment. So we're seeing that that's our €100 Euro, um, energy credit, which we'll get, I presume, somewhere after the end of March. That's done, uh, at least this once, this, this once. The other things that they recommended that countries should do, the first one was to authorise a temporary deferral of bill payments. Um, and the third one, I think, was to basically avoid or make sure that people don't get disconnected from the grid. Now, this is obviously uh, specifically in relation to the energy conversation. And I think there was another one after that, which was to target um, a reduction in tax for vulnerable households. So these are the options that have been given to government, you know, at least from the EU, uh, from an energy perspective. And I think from what I from what I know, they are under consideration. I know Michal Martin was talking in the Dáil and said we will do more. And when there was a post-cabinet briefing later on, we asked the government press secretary, what does he mean, you know, when he says that we'll do more? And he said all options are under consideration. And basically, you can expect to hear about that in the coming months. So I get the sense that they have other measures that they are prepared to roll out. But they're waiting, I think, until they see how long this lasts for. And I think they're waiting, you know, they don't want to just unleash every tool they have uh, in the armoury ahead of time when they know that this is going to be a really long debate that, as the central bank says, will go on all year long uh, and that there won't be any immediate reprieve. And the final thing I would say is we're kind of also at the mercy of some unknown factors such as weather. You know, you know, obviously, if we have a colder spring, uh, that puts a huge amount of pressure and, and there are some things, you know, geopolitics, all that stuff is kind of outside of our control. Um, but the things that are under our control, I think we'll have to wait and see a little while longer what, what the plan is there. Yeah, I wonder how useful some of those measures, those uh, EU recommended measures would be in Ireland, uh, Harry. I mean, for example, the, the the reduction in tax because of the way our tax is structured, people in vulnerable situations uh, don't pay, certainly certainly very much in the way of income tax compared to other, other European countries. But I suppose really... Um, if you if you were to divide the population into people for whom increases in the price of petrol and pasta are an irritant and people for whom the increases in prices of petrol and pasta are a disaster or at least a deep worry, Sinn Féin are claiming to represent the latter. And you do see at times in debates in the Dáil over the last week or two, again, a more heightened emphasis on this idea that the government looks after one portion of the population and not the other. And you've seen Micheál Martin push back on that as well. What a wonderful segue, Hugh. Well done. <laughs> uh, going from one theme to another, but uh, wonderfully, yes. Um, that was a very interesting exchange uh, last week and it was very telling. And uh, Michal Martin was extraordinarily strong in it. I, I actually didn't go along with his view all the way. Um, he, he he himself comes from a, a very modest background in Cork and he he kind of his his tool for the debate was a form of reverse uh class uh reverse class kind of warfare uh where he was saying that those who were arguing on behalf of the working classes were themselves privileged and had privileged uh backgrounds whereas he himself who was being portrayed as the elite uh, came from a working class and very modest background and that 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 that's quite true uh, but in a sense, he, he was saying that Sinn Féin should not lecture him, you know, uh, on being elitist when when he had gone through so much sacrifice. 
At the same time, he shouldn't be lecturing Sinn Féin for arguing on behalf of the working classes just because they themselves, by happenstance, happened to have, uh, you know, uh, private education and come from well-heeled suburbs uh, of Dublin. So you could see both sides uh, of the argument. But if you, if you, if you, that kind of personal dispute aside, if you look at the strategy that is being pursued by Sinn Féin, it's exactly as you say it, Hugh. They are they they know that their 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 electorate and their their potential supporters the base is increasing but they have very much stayed uh, within the kind of cohort that they have been chasing for the past 10 years and that's working class people uh, people who are struggling to make ends meet those who feel disillusioned uh, by uh, conventional politics uh, and also by uh, what they describe as the mainstream media us uh, in, in other words. And uh, I, I'm surprised at that. I thought that they would modify some of their stances a little bit more and try to make the party a little bit more uh, appealing. So if you look, for example, uh, at its tax policies and its finance policies, it was very, very left wing in the run up to the 2020 uh, election. And I, I expected it uh, uh, for the pre-budget submission last year uh, to be a, a little more emollient in terms of appealing to a kind of a wider uh, cohort of people. Uh, but there was very little evidence of that to be gleaned uh, from it. Now, it may happen between now and the next election. There is a lot of time. But they are very, very much focused on that particular cohort that you identified uh, when you were introducing this particular question. Because that's their core support, Pat, isn't it? It makes complete sense. And I mean, what Mayol Martin was doing, I mean, Harry's right, it was heartfelt. But in a way, it's a very old playbook. Uh, the phrase smoked salmon socialist, I think, was coined for the, the Labour Party way back in the early 70s or or something of that sort. But I mean, the Sinn Féin's position, I'm not quite sure how much it maps exactly to class. Of course, it does in terms of the demographics of of its core support and things like that. But there is almost, there is also a, a, an element of populism, Owen O'Brien himself has described Sinn Féin as a, as a populist party, which is, you know, us the people versus you the elites. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily map to class populism in that way. So Owen O'Brien can cook his lovely um, recipes and put them up on social Shrimp. media and <laughs> be generally quite bourgeois bohemian. And that doesn't really uh, affect what, uh, what Sinn Féin are, are presenting to the public. No, but he will find his opponents taking the piss out of it. Uh, I, I think, which is probably which is probably fair enough as well. I mean, Sinn Fein. One of the trends that we've seen since the last election is Sinn Fein moving beyond that traditional working class base of support. They're they're far bigger than that now, and but they extend along generational terms. So, what do you think about Harry's point then about the about the tax? What do you think about Harry's point about them not adjusting? Uh, not adjusting their their taxes and high earners proposals. Well, they've adju- they have adjusted them over previous years. Not perhaps so much since the the, tw- the, the, the Sinn Féin manifesto in twenty twenty was identifiable left wing, but left wing in a redistributively left wing in a kind of a mainstream social democrat stroke socialist European sense. It wasn't. Uh, confiscatory or revolutionary, uh, uh, I, uh, I think. I mean, it proposes higher public spending to be paid for out by those cohorts in society, which it views as fair game for paying more tax, people on quite high incomes and the business sector and people who avail of 
tax breaks to provide for their own uh, private pensions. They were the great funders and the corporate sector. They were the they were the great funders of the expansion of the state that Sinn Féin uh, proposed in 2020 and still uh, and still proposes. Of course, the state has grown massively since 2020 as a result of uh, of COVID. And one of the great political challenges now will be either consolidating that growth or pulling it back uh, a bit. That's one of the great challenges that faces Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath in the coming months of the winding back of COVID, uh, of COVID supports to workers and, uh, and, and businesses, which have been, you know, very necessary, but, but hugely expensive. On the broader point, Hugh, about, uh, the, the populist discourse of Sinn Féin, uh, which we've discussed uh, here before. And I mean, you're right that Ona Bryn describes it as populist, but he adds the important adjective left populist uh, to it. And I suppose it's not a fantastically original political approach. It's been uh, it's been utilised in many other places in recent years. And also historically, it pits the representatives of the virtuous people against uh, the ignoble elites who run the country for their own benefit and not for the benefit of uh, of the masses. That's all very well, good, good, good knockabout stuff. The problem I have with um, much of uh, populism, whether of a left or or, or right wing variety, is that it tends to propose very simple solutions to what are complex problems. A more dangerous element of populism is that it very often seeks to focus on a particular group as the scapegoats for the, uh, the woes of the, uh, of, of the virtuous people. One final point about it is I think that running that elite versus the masses message in, in, in Ireland faces some, obviously Sinn Féin have had some uh, success with it, but it faces some obstacles. And one of them is that the Irish political class, by virtue of the size of the country and the nature of our political system, is kind of as far as you can get from a political elite. Irish politicians are very much in touch with their electorates. They're very responsive to their electorates because if they're not they end up losing their seat uh, very quickly. So the idea of, you know, the elite versus the, uh, the, 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 the virtuous masses is something that works more, I think, at a, at a sort of a theoretical level uh, in Ireland than, than works at a practical level. So what, politi- what people tend to say about their politicians is, oh, you know, I, you know, I, I, I may believe that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are part of an out-of-touch elite, but actually, you know, my local TD, I know him, I calls around to my door. If I have a problem, I can ring him. Whether he can solve it or not is, uh, is another matter. So while the populist narrative has been very politically profitable for Sinn Féin, until now, um, I, I think there are certain obstacles it will have to get over to be electorally successful uh, in the future. That's not to say it can't do that, but I think those obstacles are there for it. I think there's a lot of truth in that, and it's certainly be true historically. I do wonder how social media changes that relationship to some extent, but maybe that's only a, a smaller part of it. Last question to you, Jen. Are we actually grabbing the wrong end of the stick here? Is the reality for the ministers 
um, arriving at their desks this morning that many of them are thinking, actually, I've only got 10 more months in this job because there's going to be a new Taoiseach and almost certainly a major reshuffle. So if I want to affect change or make a mark, uh, I've got to do it between now and the end of November. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's such an interesting question because, um, you know, if you ask them, if you hear ministers talking about this on radio or if they're asked out on doorsteps, you know, like, oh, I'm just getting on with the job. And, you know, I haven't heard anything about a reshuffle or anything like that. But actually, you know, the truth of the matter is it's really um, exercising and op- occupying minds. I heard of, uh, I, you know, anecdotal stories of advisors kind of turning around to each other in the corridors and being like, oh, my God, like, I don't know, like they're, you know, this is such a huge year and we have to get it right and that their ministers are like going around like as if they've had 65 cups of coffee every morning in a bid to make sure they get everything done. Um, and it, it is at the, you know, I wouldn't say the forefront of minds, but it's definitely there, this question about the reshuffle and the, the spectre of it was raised first by Leo Varadkar before Christmas at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting when he said, basically, pull up your socks or else because changes are coming. Um, and that led to the kind of this, just discussion about well, who would he drop from his own um, Fine Gael at, at top squad. So it it is a it's it's definitely exercising minds, and I think that you'll see an extra energy and fervor maybe behind uh, some of the some of the work rate, especially especially post COVID. But I, I I know that like they're trying to dampen the the conversation about it and the the speculation about it. But obviously the big change apparently you know there's a big question mark over it obviously, but. The changeover will happen in mid-December and that will lead to, well, more changes. Indeed, lots of changes. So lots to look forward to over the course of the year. We will leave it there, though, for today. Thanks to Jen, to Harry and to Pat and to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon. Remember that you can contact us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening.